This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. And, you know, it's been a few days since I've been in the, the big man's chair. Yeah. Yeah, everything's still good. Settling in for a Tuesday edition of the program. Thank you, wherever you're listening in around the world. Hopefully you're settling in as well. And uh, thank you for being with us. And Ramya, thank you for holding down the fort over uh, the last couple of shows. Welcome back, Kels. Yeah, it's been a fun few days. Had uh, lots of conversations where we missed you, but, you know, you're back. Well, back. We'll settle in now for the go and uh, program later on. And a lot of uh, a lot of good conversations on today's show ahead too, Rum. So let's uh, let's jump into it and tell folks what's coming up. Okay. Wellness contributor Francis Wong brings us cannabis 101. What, how, and why cannabis is used? Mm-hmm. We're also talking about the Ashkenaz Festival. It's one of the largest and most prestigious uh, showcases of Jewish music and culture anywhere in the world, and we're learning more about the event. And later on in Hour 2 of the program, Lucia Belafonte breaks down the importance of organizational skills and the way these uh, skills help children with disabilities foster independence. A really good conversation. I think Rami and I will be weighing in on that, too, um, just kind of supporting its importance. Remember, that comes up in the second hour of Kelly and Company. A former Twitter security chief has turned whistleblower, folks. Peter Zatko, who was Twitter's security chief until he was fired earlier this year, has filed whistleblower complaints, alleging the company misled regulators about its cybersecurity defenses and its problems with fake accounts, according to reports by The Washington Post and CNN. Zatko filed the complaints last month with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Justice. The Washington Post reports among the most serious accusations is that Twitter violated terms of a 2010 10 FTC settlement by falsely claiming it had a strong security plan. In a prepared statement, Twitter said Zatko was fired for ineffective leadership and poor performance and that the allegations appear designed to capture attention and inflict harm on Twitter, its customers, and its shareholders. Mike Gracia, Washington. Would you like to be known as a whistleblower? Mm, I guess that depends on the context, right? Like, Certain I mean, things, it, it, yeah. Well, in this case... If you feel you're saying, hey, folks, these guys made claims of of proper security, (laughs) they Mm -hmm. don't have it, you should know that if you're a user. Um, I I always think it lends what we feel is experience, knowledge that can be taken as truth or as close to truth as we're going to get, which, of course, it does not mean that. It means someone's making statements saying this is the way it is, Uh, this is what was there, this is what we were told to ignore, to do. Um, basically a person in the know for whatever that's worth. Yeah. That's the thing, right? Like you have to think about the source and the source here is pretty, uh, crucial, like in terms of where this information is coming from, how much they would actually know and, and their years of being as part of the company. Uh, it's just kind of an interesting position when we talk about whistleblowers in general, because mm-hmm. this CEO is no longer there, 
ex-CEO. Um, so they're not being harmed by having brought this about. I mean, yes, of course, they're stirring the pot. There's a lot of controversy on what it is that they're doing, but um, they're not in direct compromise of, a, of their position right. or anything like that. Whereas sometimes you're really putting yourself on the line as a whistleblower to get some important message across. And I know generally it is that person who's been let go, not with the company, moved to another. And sometimes there are conversations that come out with the intent that, well, you know, when I was over there, we did this. You did what? Other times it's definitely to feed yep. information to the media uh, or, or government uh, organizations that stop and say, whoa, hold on. You guys aren't supposed to be doing that. It's kind of like the belief of the security thing. And this is, I find it interesting because we often know security breaches. We know when we're in jeopardy, uh, we have to maybe download uh, the updated operating system or something like that. But who is who does weigh in on, hey... You know, you said your security was great, that you had everything in place. Uh, you know, there's there's got to be that policing that is the ones to say, no, no, you didn't. Not just a whistleblower saying, mm-hmm. hey, it, it, uh, some of that stuff is pretty, in my opinion, if it's being checked out, it's pretty obvious that, hey, if we're able to get in here, your, your security is lousy. Yeah. But again, it's a difference- that's just my opinion. Right. And it's that difference between or like the integrity of um, someone who's, you know, posting on Reddit because they used to be an ex-employee of whatever establishment saying, oh, my God, if you knew what was at Starbucks, sorry, Starbucks, uh, you wouldn't eat it. Right. Like that kind of thing versus, you know, this is a really huge issue. And there's a, a mass of people who don't understand the capacity of this challenge. And therefore, we need to bring it to light Um, because. Yeah, you know, maybe you don't want to eat McDonald's ice cream because somebody told you who works there. But, you know, security breaches and false claims and uh, the things that we sign up for, especially online, Hmm. that's a different story. And while you're at it, go check your drunk drawer, will you? Yeah, you might want to check your drunk drawer. Given a survey in the U.S. has found that nearly half of Americans say they have a gift card that they haven't used yet. ABC's Rebecca Jarvis has some details for us. A new survey finds that 47% of adults have at least one unused gift card, voucher, or store credit, and the average value of those unused cards is $175 per person. That adds up to $21 billion for the entire adult population in the United States, according to estimates from creditcards.com. Wow. Big numbers. And experts will tell you. It's best to use up those gift cards sooner than later, even if they don't expire. And I get that. I I know over the years, because of that problem, and Jeff Ryman said it to us one day that he's, oh, boy, he'll go through a drawer and, hey, (laughs) and a lot of time they're already expired. He'll find, you know, some kind of gift certificate. Is this a problem you have? Yeah, I don't use enough of my gift cards and I can't even keep track of the gift cards we have had. And now there's the addition of online, like people send you e-gift cards that you have to, you know, have printed out or ready to go or even keep in mind that you (laughs) actually have. And like that number of 175 on average uh, dollars is a, a lot. It's a lot. I got one from the company. Not too long ago, and I was petrified, right? Because, I, oh, gee, this is great. And I'm thinking, where am I going to put this one? What am I going to do with it? Mm. And, and e-cards alone, you know, i like, oh, my goodness, what do I do? And, of course, the concept's so wonderful. Just go up, so we'll scan that, sir. It's that remembering or finding that email or putting it in that saved place that you know 
Uh, I'm not going to forget that it's there. It's not going to get wasted. And then, of course, on our, our case, sometimes it's that accessibility. You know, can you find how long it's good for or right. what do you do with it? And you just open it and just hope, okay, I'll just let them scan it and get whatever. But you may not have, be privy to some of the information that's there um, and, and how to actually activate it. So uh, I think sometimes the electronic is wonderful because it comes right to you. You got it there. But Sometimes it's a bit of finagling to get things to work, even even the physical card. We're going to step aside, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Tuesday edition of Kelly and Company. So much ahead on the program. Coming up next, though puppy raising doesn't come with an instruction manual, Dr. Danielle Johnkine is going to give us a top 10 list, what you can consider when raising dogs. Stay tuned. It's Kelly and Company with Ramya and Kelly. Remember, folks, when you have some time, reach out to us. Let us know you're out there. Give us a call, 1-866-509-4545. Mention it's for Kelly and company, if you would, please. Mention if it's okay that we use your message on air. If we can, we shall. 1-866-509-4545. Email. If you have questions, and the gang over at Markcom can help you out with that. Feedback at AMI.ca is the best way to do that. Feedback at AMI.ca is their email. Of course, on Twitter, you can follow along with the program, see what's happening from segment to segment, or just interact with AMI-audio at AMI-audio on Twitter. That's at AMI-audio on Twitter. Kelly McDonald here with Ramya Muthan. And on Tuesdays, we like to check in with our veterinarian, Dr. Danielle Zonkine. Today, we have a fun top 10 list coming up. Let's bring her on. The human-animal bond plays such an important role in people's lives, and as a veterinarian, it's my privilege to help keep those bonds strong and healthy. I'm Dr. Danielle Jonkai, and welcome to Ask a Veterinarian. So although it would be really, really nice and awesome that, you know, if we had children, that they come with an ex- um, instruction manual for raising them, that's not really the case. And neither do puppies have these instruction manuals. However, we'll get to the however in a second. No two puppies will respond the same to how we raise them. Uh, but there are some universal pitfall- pitfalls to avoid when raising these puppies into good canine citizens. And this is where we get the help of Dr. Danielle Jonkind because she's going to share her top 10 list of these pitfalls to avoid. Uh, while we raise our puppies. What an exciting segment, Danielle. We can all check these boxes as we go. Some of us already (laughs) puppy owners. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) Yes. We'll start with the open-mindedness and we'll see where we we go halfway (laughs) through the segment. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we get the uh, hands clapped together and Mm -hmm. rubbed together. Okay, so number 10, um, the 10th pitfall to avoid. So choosing the wrong puppy to begin with, you know, is a big one. Um, So, you know, some some dogs are just simply more work than others to raise, you know, and the best chance you have of you and your new puppy bonding strongly together is if you get one that fits well into your life. So, you know, all puppies are a lot of work and believe me, every last one of them is extremely cute. But, you know, if you, you know, sort of 
ignore what the puppy is going to become and kind of go in for that, you know, you might end up with a puppy that's ill suited to your lifestyle and your personal preferences. And believe me, that will make both of you very unhappy. Um, when that happens, you know, having a dog becomes a chore, you know, and it becomes a source of stress rather than a joy that makes your life better. So to avoid that sort of disastrous situation, you know, you, you really want to think about, you know, what do you see your dog doing on a day-to-day basis? And, you know, how how will this dog fit into your home and into your life? And you want to select a puppy that is most likely to be that ideal dog for you one day. Um, if you don't have any idea what kind of puppy that might be, you know, you, you should really get out there and ask somebody who really knows dogs for advice. So, you know, that might be an experienced dog owner who's a friend, a trainer, a breeder, or your veterinarian want somebody like that. That's a good point because there's lots of reasons why the you might think that a particular breed or even size of dog or uh, energy level might work for you in the moment, right? In the excitement of wanting a puppy, but uh, some, just a little bit of extra research uh, for me, like even shedding was a huge part of the equation because, you know, do I feel like vacuuming every day? Can I tell when my place is full of dog hair? Probably not. Yeah. No, it, it's amazing the things that, you know, bother some people and don't bother others. And yeah. it's really worth thinking about those things, you know, because you don't want it to be a source of stress no, for you. For, for sure. sure. And and I think that's so important, whether it's size, be, you know, you can think of all the things. Well, we live in this circumstance or I particularly comfortable with that or I'm busy at work. I don't have time for that. And some of those things are the, the, the things you need to take into account at first. But there are probably a lot of little things that you don't even think about. Um until you sit down and really go through it or get that advice. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, I think I think it makes a big difference if you start out with, you know, a puppy who's most likely to be a good fit for you. And, uh, you know, that's half the battle right there. And of course, like the second part of the battle is actually raising the puppy that you do get. So the next pitfall is um, failing to keep your puppy safe. You know, um, a lot of people, you know, sort of forget that, you know, puppies are a lot like toddlers, you know, <laughs> they're curious about the world and they like to put everything in their mouths as they're exploring it and you really can't trust them for a minute not to eat something that they shouldn't (laughs) so you know you wouldn't leave your toddler without a babysitter so you know don't leave your puppy alone in a situation where they could get into trouble either so you know you've either got to have you know a pet sitter or a friend or a relative to look after them um, you've, or you've got to use a crate when you're not home and you can't supervise them or at least have a puppy proofed area for them to stay in. Um, you know, this prevents them from getting into things they shouldn't. And it also helps to house train them, you know, so when you can't be with your puppy, cause we can't spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week with them. We have mm-hmm. other stuff we have to do. We need to make sure that, you know, that puppy is safe and, you know, until they learn the ropes and, you know, learn what goes on in life and what's safe and what isn't. Awesome. Okay. That's really good. Okay, next. Uh, failing to decide on the rules before you have to enforce them <laughs> with the puppy. <laughs> oh, okay. Good one. 
Yeah, so, you know, everybody has different rules for what they will and won't allow their dogs to do. Um, some people really don't care if their dog is on the couch, while others don't want them on the furniture at all. And, you know, some people don't care if their dog begs for food at the table, and this drives other people absolutely nuts. So it's really important to decide beforehand what the rules of the house will be for the puppy. And, you know, if you make them up as you go along and changing them all the time, you know, will only confuse your puppy, who already honestly has a lot to learn. So, you know, you've got to decide where do you want your puppy to go to the bathroom? Is it outside or inside on a pad? How do you feel about barking? Will they be allowed on the furniture? What are the rules regarding food and treats? And how do you want your puppy to behave when you have them out in public? Like there's really actually a lot to think about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it goes hand in hand with um, people being on the same page, right? Like, you know, yeah. I know that the way that my dog is behaving at my house is not how he's going to be behaving at grandma's house because it's yeah. just vetoed. <laughs> Well, and there's only so much so far you can go with, hey, we need consistency because if you live with other people, if you're in a house with three or four, yeah. other, like a whole family, yeah, everyone's going to have their own where those eyes looking at you makes you, well, no, I guess you get on the couch. Yes, mm -hmm. no, that's right. You know, and actually that that one was my number four is failing to have everyone in the house be consistent. So, you know, just like you guys were talking about, you know, you you it's helpful and less confusing for your puppy when everyone in the house follows the same rules. That way they don't have to remember what the rules are for each specific person. So that makes a big difference. And number seven, failing to train your puppy from the start. So there is no magic age at which you should start training your puppy. In fact, puppies are... <laughs> Never too young to learn, and they're constantly learning from everything you do. So don't wait to start shaping their behavior into the best dog they can possibly be. The only difference really between between training a puppy and an older dog is to adjust your expectations to match their age. So, you know, young puppies don't have much of an attention span, so shorter, more frequent training sessions are more effective than longer ones given less often. And you also have to be aware of their physical limitations, especially with things like house training you know they have these teeny tiny little bladders that don't hold very much urine so if you leave them without a chance to eliminate an appropriate place longer than they can hold it they'll have to go where they are and that isn't their fault so those are you know kind of some things to keep in mind for sure a big one was puppy biting like when you're when you're playing and and you're teaching them it's okay to bite or whatever when they're teething um you know that kind of stuff you have to really you know, train out of them from the beginning because or else before you know it, they're the 80 pound dog that still thinks it's okay to bite your finger off. And drywall. Exactly. And shoes. <laughs> and drywall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Number six, failure to properly socialize your puppy. So puppies really need to have positive experiences with a wide variety of people, other animals and situations to make them into good canine citizens. So be sure, you know, you choose their exposures carefully. Um, bad experiences can set them up for a lifetime of fearful behavior and potentially aggression problems if you're not careful. But you really do want them exposed to all kinds of people, like with different clothing. You want cats, other dogs, children, stairs, crowds, car trips, water, whatever, you name it. 
And if they have regular and positive, you know, experiences with all of these things, they're more likely to just kind of take the world in stride as they go through life. And uh, personality and temperament, of course, play a big role in a dog's reactions to these things. But even if they're prone to reacting badly, you know, you may be able to make their their behavior more manageable with this proper socialization and training. So that's really important. Awesome. What else? Yep. Yep. Number five, rewarding them for behaviors you don't want. (laughs) So we all know about this if we have kids too, right? (laughs) But it goes back to deciding what the rules are before you bring your puppy home. So um, sticking to them means that you don't reward the puppy for breaking them. So what is a reward to a puppy? So, of course, food is for sure. Um, If you don't want your puppy begging at the table, don't give them anything from it no matter what. Um, touch, praise, and attention can also be potent rewards to a dog as well. So if you don't want your puppy jumping up on you when you come in the door, don't look at them, touch them, or talk to them at all when they do those behaviors. Just turn your back and walk away from them instead. So, you know, again, just remember what those rewards are and do not give them to a puppy when they're performing a behavior that you don't want them to continue doing. So much is so hard for the individual because almost it's, it's, it's harder for them to do it because oh, I'm being cruel. But no, you want an end result. So you've got to follow through. Next one. Failing to tell them when they're doing something wrong. And I want to stress that this is not the same thing as punishment. Punishment is an unpleasant consequence designed to convince a puppy not to repeat a behavior. And the only way it works is if it's applied at the exact right time and if it's severe enough to overcome the motivation to perform the behavior in the first place. It also has several drawbacks. You can injure your puppy and it teaches your dog not to trust you, destroying that bond you're trying so hard to build. So obviously it's a really bad idea and I don't recommend it but having a no word that tells your puppy that you don't approve of their behavior is not really a bad thing because how are they supposed to know if they did something wrong if you don't tell them and most puppies don't automatically understand the word no but they do understand tone of voice and volume so you know anytime your puppy does something inappropriate you know you should use your no word within one second of the behavior so they have a clear consistent message I don't like that (laughs) that's not a good idea Mm -hmm. okay Uh, Number two, failing to tell them when they're doing something right. (laughs) So like letting them know when they've done something wrong, it's not enough. You have to let your puppy know when they've done something right. And that's even more important than that no word. Because by rewarding a behavior, you are creating motivation for your puppy to do it again. So like we talked about, lavish praise, treats, and attention on behaviors that you want your puppy to keep. And, you know, that's really important to teach them that as well. Amazing. Do we have one or two more? We got to run through. Just one. So the the last one is failing to get help with a problem before it becomes more than you can handle. So the biggest pitfall, you know, comes when in spite of our best efforts, a behavior problem develops that we can't deal with. And, you know, when one of these problem behaviors escalating and getting worse, don't wait Ask for help from someone who knows, a trainer, your veterinarian. Um, there are animal behavior specialists who are available as well. Um, many behavior problems can be resolved and if not, maybe manageable with help. And the sooner you get that help, you know, the better the outcome is likely to be. Mm-hmm. And this can look different for different puppies, but uh, very in- important to have that support system uh, either available to you or to look into it. Danielle, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. 
You're welcome. Now we all have a checklist that we can follow for, you know, not the instruction manual, but for keeping our canine citizens appropriately behaved. Next week, we'll talk about monkeypox because there's some updates on that front with our pets as well. All right. Coming up in just a moment, folks, wellness contributor Francis Wong brings us Cannabis 101. Folks, what, how, and why cannabis is used? Stay tuned, please. She's got all the goods for us. Kind of wondering what's on in your area and describe TV, folks? Check out the DV Guide, ami.ca slash DV Guide. Go in there, enter your postal code and the time frame in which you're curious about, and up will come all of the programs that are in audio description right there and available to you. That's ami.ca slash DV Guide. Ramya Muthan, Kevin McDonald, we are the hosts of the program. Thanks for being with us on your Tuesday as we work our way through. So did you get enough uh, tips there from Danielle? Not just tips, but real nostalgic reflections of our (laughs) own puppy raising. Because, yeah, Glizzy's turning three, right? So it really is recent memories of all of the things that she talked about. Really nice. Real nice tutorial almost there. That was uh, a really (laughs) wonderful. Okay, I better save that to my podcast, folks. So for those that found that quite handy or if you haven't had a chance, do check it out. Let's talk about the world of uh, health and wellness with Francis Wong. Hello, I'm Francis Wong, and I invite you to join me as we explore topics of health and wellness so that you can make the best choices for you to live an informed and radiant life. If you live in Toronto or many other similar uh, places, locations, you've probably noticed cannabis or weed stores popping up all over the city in the last uh, few years. And with more opening across Canada, marijuana has become more and more popular. Uh, Francis, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, first off the top, there are may- so many different terms that people use when they talk about marijuana. Weed, uh, I've heard the terms THC, uh, CPD, and hemp. Can you break that down for the listeners, please? Yes, I will. I agree that it can seem quite confusing, especially if you're not familiar with all the terms used in this industry. And it's quite an industry with about 147 million people or 2.5% of the world population consuming cannabis on an annual basis. In fact, the World Health Organization notes that half of all drug seizures worldwide are cannabis seizures. And in Canada, it is the second most commonly used substance after alcohol. So when people are talking about marijuana or weed, they're generally referring to the cannabis plant and the, and the consumption of extracts of this plant. Before we dive deeper into this, uh, Kelly and Ramya, what are some of the reasons that you hear or think of for why people consume marijuana? Um. Well, of course, medical. recreational, oh. medical, pain, mm-hmm. pain control. Um, there's a few others. Experimentation, that, uh, which is recreational. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Um, yeah. Pretty much covers it. Um, there are several reasons um, as, as why people use marijuana, especially since can, um, 
Canada has become the second country in the world to legalize and regulate the sale and use of cannabis, uh, which happened uh, in October of 2018. Prior to that, it had been legal for medicinal purposes in Canada. And as you both mentioned, some people like um, that high feeling or buzz that they can get, which may help them in performing better or being more productive in certain tasks, while others like marijuana for the feelings of well-being, since it can have relaxing and calming properties. Mm -hmm. Then there are people who are curious and want to experiment recreationally. And another more common reason is that there are those who use marijuana therapeutically to self-medicate. And by that, I mean to reduce social anxiety or stress or to reduce symptoms associated with depression, using it as a natural remedy. So you guys covered it all. Um, In very basic terms, the human body has an endocannabinoid system, or ECS, which is basically a network of chemical signals and cellular receptors found throughout our brain and body. The cannabinoid receptors in the brain control the levels and activity of other neurotransmitters that affect our body, such as regulating hunger, temperature, alertness, pain control, and sleep. The cannabinoid receptors in our bodies play a role in controlling also our inflammatory and immune responses, and our bodies produce endocannabinoids, which bind to these cannabinoid receptors. So getting back to the plant, the cannabis plant contains over 100 chemical compounds called cannabinoids that hold both medicinal and psychoactive properties, and these have a very similar structure to the molecules produced by our body. In other words, by consuming marijuana, we can trick our body into giving us similar effects that our own body would create. You're asking about THC and CBD at the top of the segment. Well, these are two of the compounds found in the cannabis plant. THC stands for tetrahydrocannabinol, and CBD stands for cannabidiol. So what's important to remember is that while both cannabinoids have many of the same medicinal benefits, the way they affect the person is different. So THC is known for its euphoric effects, which give people that high, whereas CBD doesn't have this effect. Have you guys also heard of the term uh, sativa and indica? Not myself. Yes, strands. Mm. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So these actually refer to two of the three species of cannabis. I'll just mention the third one, which is called ruderalis, but it isn't consumed because it is low on the med- medically active compounds that people seek. So when someone is shopping for marijuana, they can choose from the category of sativa or indica or a hybrid, which is a combination of both. Sativa strains are generally but not always associated with that energizing high, whereas indica strains are generally um, more referred to as nighttime strains and is used for relaxing and unwinding in the evening. So due to crossbreeding, though, pure sativa or pure indica strains are rare. Most today are, in fact, hybrids that have just a little bit more of one than the other. And of course, there are exceptions as to the various strains and their effects since everybody's personal chemistry is unique. But you can always ask the staff at the shops for assistance. Hybrid strains will get their effects from both sativa and indica. So for those who can look at their parent strains, um, for those, you can look at the parent strains to give you a better idea of what the effect will be. Yeah, and and it kind of links back to what you were saying about self-medicating or um, your reasons for the use of marijuana when you think about the effects of sativa and indica, right, and and why you would choose uh, a particular strain or care about the... Um, the, the the way that it would make you feel afterwards. So some people mm-hmm. use marijuana therapeutically and you touched briefly on that. Uh, what kind of health issues can marijuana address? 
Yeah, the reason I wanted to cover this topic was because of the health angle and to raise awareness to listeners about what marijuana can do. So I know for myself, previously with my lack of knowledge, I had associated marijuana with just getting high. So medical marijuana has been used and prescribed where other treatments have not worked or in conjunction with treatments. There are a variety of health conditions that studies have reported as possibly benefiting from marijuana. But I think one of the main purposes of using it therapeutically is for severe and chronic pain. Other conditions that marijuana can be used for include Alzheimer's, epilepsy and seizures, multiple sclerosis and muscle spasms, and even severe nausea or vomiting caused by cancer treatment. A 2017 report by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine showed some evidence that marijuana can help alleviate short-term sleep issues associated with some health conditions, but ongoing research is improving what we know about both the pros and cons and risks and benefits of using cannabis. What are the various ways that one can consume weed? Uh, So there are four primary ways that marijuana can be taken. The first is smoking it in a joint format where marijuana is rolled in cigarette paper or using pipes. The second method is drinking or eating it through teas, sodas, or baked goods like gummy candies and brownies. The third way is through vaping, which is breathing in dried cannabis or liquid cannabis vapors through a vaping device. And the fourth way is something called dabbing, which is breathing in very hot vapors from heating cannabis concentrates. We don't have enough time to get into it, but I wanted to mention that if you are orally consuming weed as an edible, note that the effects take longer to kick in. So it is highly recommended that you start off with a very small dose, even as little as 1 to 2.5 milligrams, and that if it's your first time, that you do it in the evening in case the dose is too much, and then you can just sleep it off and not have to force yourself to stay awake the rest of the day. People like to consume edibles uh, because Mm -hmm. they may not like to smoke or vape or the smell of it. And edibles are discreet. Like you really can't tell if a brownie has marijuana in it from a regular brownie, which also means you need to be careful to place these out of the reach of children and pets. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge one. Um, Also, Francis, I've been hearing about other ways to utilize marijuana aside from actually um, you know, consuming it, eating it, drinking it, in um, injecting it, what not injecting, you know what I mean? Like um, <laughs> yeah. actually putting it into your body. So uh, can we touch on some of those? Yeah, sure, Ramya. Um, I know this is the health and wellness segment and not the fashion one, but one of the other uses of cannabis is in consumer textiles such as clothing, handbags, and fabrics. And you might remember during our plastic segment back in April how I mentioned that a lot of clothing today is made of petroleum-based plastics like nylon or polyester. So if you're looking for an alternative to those, you can consider hemp in addition to cotton or wool fabrics. Hemp is the common term used for cannabis that is grown for non-drug use. And the reason hemp isn't used for recreational purposes is that it has such a low amount of THC that you cannot get high on it. So you can try. (laughs) Hemp is also used in other materials like industrial textiles, such as ropes and twine, carpets, nets, and canvas, along with paper such as newsprint, printing paper, and cardboard packaging. There are other uses for hemp seed oil, such as varnishes and lubricants, and in food such as cooking oils and salad oils. So as you can see, cannabis is a very versatile plant. Wow. 
Any other final thoughts that you'd like to mention about marijuana? Sure. Um, Over our conversation, we've talked about the different use of cannabis and how they can be beneficial to you if you wish to experiment. There are also limits as to the amount that one can carry. And of course, you must be of legal age in your province or territory to be able to buy, possess, or consume marijuana. And just a friendly reminder that because it is legal in Canada doesn't mean that it's legal elsewhere. So if you're traveling and you consume marijuana in any of its forms, check first to see whether you are even allowed to travel with it. It's still highly recommended that you consult with your family doctor if you're considering consuming marijuana, especially if you're pregnant or on medications, as there are possible contraindications that could lead to negative side effects with certain drugs. We've only scratched the surface, so I invite the listeners to look into this further if their interest has been piqued. Mm. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say, we know it was a pretty big move um, several years ago when Canada made it legal to to buy and consume marijuana and, you know, different things. Um, we know it was a pretty big deal. But as you say, Francis, it it's still quite new, like in the bigger picture of things uh, and international perspective. So um, we're still kind of learning, like everyone's still learning. And actually, the I'd say the, the stigma around marijuana use is still kind of uh, in that state of transition as well. People feeling more l- liberal about talking about it and and um not necessarily is thinking oh gosh marijuana that drug right like because there are all these different uses why people um learn about it or utilize it themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit more normalized because you see all the exactly. shops mm-hmm. and and i think as we hear the different uses, whether it's the synthetics, whether it's, you know, people consuming in in drinks and different things like that. Uh, And it makes you, you know, you wonder, okay, governments, and and again, I think a lot of the people who are opponents of it, look at the fact that if you're going to legalize alcohol, you know, this is uh, something that in a lot of ways is is natural, well, is natural, and there are other benefits to it. Um, and it's hard if you we've like you said, Francis, starting and doing your research, your knowledge of it is, hey, man, it's recreational. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think that's been one of the hardest things that I've grasped with um, with people who need it for for definitely medical purposes. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Interesting topic. Thanks, guys. Francis Wong joins us bi-weekly to talk wellness opposite our nutrition segment here on Kelly and Company with Julia Karanchis. Coming up next, the Ashkenaz Festival is one of the largest and most prestigious showcases of Jewish music and culture in the world. We learn more about this event in two minutes. When you have some time, remember, subscribe to the Kelly and Company podcast, if you would. There you can listen to the show in its full version. We toss on an audio vanity card right on the end there you can take a listen to. But if you prefer, maybe you had a segment you just want to hear again, you want to check out, maybe it came partially through it into listening to the show. Well, subscribe to the podcast because you can listen to the segments on their own, parceled out and available to you in 
course, share that link with somebody if you want to share it. Uh, also, again, listen to the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience if you have a mind to. So we like to have choices when indulging in the podcast, folks. It's a great way to catch up on the show if you do a little binging. That's the Kelly and Company podcast available to you. Just simply subscribe using your favorite podcatcher. Kelly McDonald here with Ramya Muthan. Kels, we're uh, still waiting on our um, next guest to hopefully join us today. But uh, in the meantime, shall we talk about some other things? Yeah, always have some great stuff, uh, really, Rum, to to get into on the yeah. program. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say maybe we should talk about some things going on in the world of animals because this one's pretty interesting. I wanted to bring it up on the roundtable, but too late. It's being brought up now. So a team of zoologists, (laughs) genetic scientists, and venture capitalists is trying to bring back an animal declared extinct nearly 100 years ago. The last Tasmanian tiger, or thylacine, died in captivity in 1936. So there is actual video of that creature. More importantly, there's well-preserved genetic material, which could make reassembling the genome possible in the next decade. The thylacine looks like a cross between a wolf, a fox, and a tiger, but it's actually a marsupial. The goal is to reintroduce that carnivore back into the wild in Tasmania. What's unknown is the potential impact on an ecosystem that's adjusted to life without it. Jim Ryan, ABC News. So doesn't that sound like something that's just literally a plot from a sci-fi movie? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding. If you had no context that this was real life, you would think it's the the synopsis of an upcoming blockbuster. Like it's absolutely wild to me. And again, when we, you know, debrief and we reflect, we think, okay, this is where things are headed. Like the the technology, the conversations, the uh, actual science and research is out there now, but it still feels wild to think this thing was uh, extinct a hundred years ago, you know, or so. And now we're saying, but we have the power to bring it back. To yeah, life. I think it's always really funny, and especially when you hear capitalists mentioned in there and the funding and everything like that. So it's it's a funny one, and I know it always makes us wonder: is this for real? But rum, there are so many things nowadays, and and I always think if you're talking to a young person, they kind of must chuckle when you fail to understand how something's done because to them, what are you talking about? This is every day. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We live from the perspectives we're used to and the biases that we come with. But, um, you know, if if you're growing up in this time, you're like, yeah, of course. Of course we're getting there now. Of course the autonomous vehicles are out in 2023. (gasps) Still can't get over that. All right. Well, let's talk about something else. The Ashkenaz Festival is one of the largest and most prestigious showcases of Jewish music and culture anywhere in the world. And we're going to talk about the 13th edition of this festival, uh, which takes place in Toronto from August 30th to September 5th. So coming up with artistic director, Eric Stein. Eric, thank you for making some time to come on Kelly and Company. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you explain what the Ashkenaz Festival is, uh, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, The Ashkenaz Festival is a celebration of global Jewish music and culture. The festival was started in 1995, and it was originally created as a vehicle for celebrating Eastern European Jewish culture, which is what the title refers to, Ashkenaz. It refers Mm. to Eastern European Jews or Ashkenazic Jews. Um, Over the years, we have broadened our mandate to include other forms of Jewish identity, 
as well as all sorts of sort of cross-cultural manifestations of Jewish music and culture in dialogue with non-Jewish forms. So that's why we've sort of gone for our, our initially the tagline of the festival when we started in the 90s was a festival of new Yiddish culture because the festival at that time was very much a, a reflection of a, a very strong, vibrant uh, revival movement of Eastern European Jewish forms like Yiddish language and klezmer music. And uh, and now in these more recent years, we've we've broadened it to kind of celebrate all different kind of manifestations of, of Jewish music and culture. Uh, you guys have a very special opera at this year's event. Can you explain more to us about it? Yeah, we are presenting the first ever Yiddish opera uh, to be presented in Canada. And in fact, it's the first Yiddish opera that mm. was ever written. Uh, and it's a fascinating story because the work was written in 1924 in Poland by a composer named Henech Kohn. And it was only performed once. And at that time, he had not fully orchestrated the work. So it was only performed with piano accompaniment. And then it was never performed again, and the work was thought to be lost. And five years ago, a uh, manuscript of the score turned up in an auction, and an ethnomusicologist named Diana Matut uh, got her hands on this manuscript and decided that she wanted to get the work uh, revived and restored. And, and the manuscript was missing 16 pages. So uh, in addition to requiring orchestration, it also required somebody to fill in those missing parts of the of the score, um, and that was done by a musician named Josh Horwitz, and then a Toronto-based Yiddishist named Michael Wex was engaged to fill in the libretto for those missing sections, and a full version of this opera was staged for the first time in Germany in 2019, and we are now doing a new production in Toronto, which will be the, the North American premiere of this, of this work. What an incredible wow. discovery, and, and when you tell the story like that, um, really something to make people like, Wow, and and the creativity it takes to to be so true to the piece while adding those sixteen pages and and the orchestration. Absolutely, it's a, a very delicate uh, musical and historical endeavor, and one that was pulled off uh, very very deftly by all the creative people involved. And uh, and this production that we're doing for the festival this year, we're, we're doing it in partnership with UCLA in California. So they're actually sending their Philharmonia Orchestra here to perform the work, and then they'll be joined by soloists and choristers based in Toronto. Um, and uh, so it's, it's sort of an international affair, this production. It seems like a really incredible um, significance to be sharing this at the festival because of all the work that, that's been going through and the discoveries uh, and to say, okay, and this is, you know, leads back to the intention of why this festival exists in the first place. Uh, you've also yeah, had some, uh, mm-hmm, go ahead. I was going to say that that's exactly it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and it's interesting to look at how far we've come as a festival and how far this Yiddish cultural revival has come in the last 27 years. Cause in the nineties, mm-hmm. it was, really very much Yiddish culture was something that everybody thought was dying out and the Yiddish language was dying away. And mm-hmm. the incredible thing is, you know, the, the reports of Yiddish's death were, were greatly exaggerated. <laughs> <because> it's <laughs> yes. become extremely vibrant and ever more so vibrant as the years go by. And you see creative projects like this that are making, you know, what was once considered a dead language uh, new again and fresh yeah. for younger generations. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the younger generations part of it is so important, too. We can get into that. But there's other things that have been going on throughout the festival. Um, can you talk about some of the ones that are catching your attention? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so most of the festival is actually free. The, the opera is a ticketed event, and we have two other ticketed events, including our opening concert, which is a, a concert of women cantors, um, and then another theater show that we are doing called uh, Last Night at Cabaret Yiddish, which is also a, a performance in Yiddish with English subtitles. And that's sort of a, a very riotous and uproarious comedic thing that uh, has been described as uh, cabaret meets the producers in Yiddish. <laughs> <laughs> um, so those are the ticketed events. And then that, that last one, the, the cabaret thing, that uh, brings us into our weekend at Harborfront Center. And this is really what has been the heart of this festival all along, is we have a massive uh, celebration at Harborfront Center over Labor Day weekend with almost all the events free. Um, and uh, we have a, a, an incredible array of different performers from different parts of uh, Canada, the U.S., and Europe, and Israel, and uh, a really diverse, eclectic lineup that ranges from, uh, well, we talked about the Yiddish opera, but we've also got, obviously, klezmer music, and we've got a Jewish bluegrass band. We've got Sephardic and Ladino singers. This is uh, Ladino is the... Uh, Judeo-Spanish language of Sephardic Jews. So Sephardic Jews are, are Jews that come from uh, Spain and Portugal and the Mediterranean. Um, and we have uh, an incredible singer and violinist from Los Angeles who's of Persian Jewish descent named Chloe Pormoradi. We have uh, a group called the Ukrainian Jewish All-Stars. We're actually um, spotlighting a lot of Ukraine, Ukrainian-based culture in the, in the festival this year. Nice. Um, so much of the work that we present is actually originates in that part of the world. There was a, a, a very large Jewish population there before the Holocaust, and some of the most vibrant um, music and culture that has come from the Jewish community has come from that region. So uh, on Saturday night at Harborfront, uh, September 3rd, we're going to have a 15-piece band with singers and brass musicians um, performing a, a diverse selection of uh, Ukrainian Jewish music. Boy, and, that's uh, beautiful. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. And we also have a, an exhibition that's going to be up during the weekend at the festival that explores a thousand years of uh, interaction between Jews and Uk Ukrainians. Oh, um, and really sort of gets deep into what you know that sort of cultural relationship, which is, is so intimate. Eric, we're about out of time. Tell us where we can go get more information online. Ashkenaz.ca. A-S-H-K-E-N-A-Z.ca. Amazing. Uh, appreciate your time and thank you so much for joining us on the show and all the best. Thank you very much. Take care. We were speaking to the artistic director of the Ashkenaz Festival, Eric Stein, talking about the 13th edition of this festival running in Toronto from August 30th to September 5th. After the break in the next hour, Lucia Belafonte will be breaking down the importance of organizational skills and the ways that these skills help children with disabilities foster independence. On our book club, we review The Scarlet Leather Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. But up next, folks, Montreal Community Reporter Matthew, Mathieu Rochette joins us with his Community Report to kick the hour off. Stay tuned. Music means we're back with Kelly and Company, your upbeat talk show in the midst of the afternoon. 
right here on AMI-audio. Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald. We are the hosts of the program. So does the music give you that same kind of energy anymore? Or are you too used to it? Oh, too used to it for sure. I don't, now, That's the wrong answer. I hope I'm not. I was just going to say, don't go saying it too loud. You don't want to make Matt start saying, huh? Oh, no, it's not. Music. It's not negative. It's just, uh, yeah, <laughs> we've heard it, hear it all the time. And... Did you hear that in your headsets? <laughs> Negative? No. Oh, okay. You're just putting words in his mouth. I thought he, he went in your ear and said, no. don't be negative. Like <laughs> no. Uh-huh. I thought it's it not was a bad thing. Out. It's just, you know. It's like our intro music. Do you listen? Do you listen to what Bob McGee says uh, at the start of the show? I couldn't word for word anymore. I, I I used to. The music I listen to. But I've never, I'm not much of a words person. Any yeah. words over music, I don't notice yeah. by far like I do the music. So definitely the music. Does give it's me now still just a that cue. energy. Yeah. It's yeah. a cue to, to, that we're back in the segment, and but not necessarily a... But I like the energy with it, right? And oh, I, that's true. I it still is a good energy. play off it kind of thing. And that's the, the broadcaster that went to radio school, wanted to be Mr. DJ and mm-hmm. talk over music and hit the posts and stuff like that. Uh, speaking of hitting the posts, that means it's time to hit the posts and bring in our community reporter. We visit with them on Mondays and Tuesdays here on Kelly and Company. Mathieu Rochette joins us with news... From Montreal, Mathieu, welcome back. How you doing? Very good, and you, Kelly? Uh, excellent. Nice to have you in. And starting off, <clears throat> people in August would say, this is, oh, I guess we're in August. Mm-hmm. This might not be the best topic, but people have to be in the know about the Montreal Ebu. Well, exactly. Well, I, you know, it's. I thought it was been a long time I, I had news or talk about hockey, so I bring back on the table. So for people who didn't know who's the Ibu, uh, which is something that I learned when I uh, find, when I learned uh, when they got to start the new season, they are there since 1979, which is I know that they were there like in the 90, but I did not know they were so old. So the Ibu Montreal is the only club play hockey for blind people, partially or fully blind. The new season will start in September 12th. And like, you know, with this two years of opening, closing, opening, closing, uh, it's looking good now. We're having a real first full season in three years. So it's every Monday at 8 o'clock. It's always at Francis Bouillon Arena near uh, Metro Préfontaine. I say that because I play with them like almost 20 years ago now. Um, and here's the big difference between a regular hockey game and the Ibu Montreal. The rules are quite the same, but here's the huge difference. Um, first of all, the hockey puck, it is way larger, heavier, and it makes noise. So that is, you know, really a big difference. And also, for people who know about the hockey, uh, there's always a gray zone, when you go in the goaltenders area, usually they sometimes they stop, sometimes they don't, sometimes they accept, sometimes they don't accept. You never really know. It depends <laughs> the referee's decision, right? Right, right. Uh, well, in this league, you go in the goalie standard zone, the game stops straight up, right away. There's no gray zone. So this is really nice. It's protecting really the goaltender. And... Simple as that, because everyone are visual impaired. There's no or really rarely sighted 
on the ice. So every player is or visual impaired. So most of the time, the goaltender is fully blind. So he cannot protect himself mm. when there's someone's coming. And most of the time, let's be honest, the other one might not necessarily see him as well. No, <laughs> so, no. Oh, I didn't realize how close I was to you. I'm sorry. Exactly. Yeah. My bad left eyes. So anyway, guys, it's uh, it doesn't matter if you're there at the beginning or you decided during the season to join the, the group. It's every Monday, like I said, at 8 o'clock. It is really friendly. I know now it, it evolved a lot since the last 10 years. Now they do more often sure. sometimes outside game with Ontario, I believe, with Alberta as well. All details are there. The website is absolutely accessible. So you want more information on the rules, where to go, high cost, the date, the event, all stuff. You just need to go at iboudemontreal.org. You want more, some information, you can always call Gilles Ouellet, which is the president of the, uh, of the club, 514-260-6953. Wow. Okay. And you go, s- let's go. Oh, and you go, Ibugu. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, we know where you lie. Uh, so you used to play back about 20 years ago with them? Yeah, I, I played for a year. I, I, I really enjoy it. I had to stop because I was playing goalball in the same time. And Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they they make me realize that if I injure myself outside of the goal ball, that is not great. I'll yep. say that in that way. Yep. But, sports uh, no, choices, really right? The choices you have to make exactly. when, when it comes to sports. Awesome. Excellent. And yeah, people give it a try. Everyone is welcomed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Doesn't matter. You don't know to skate, you'll learn. <laughs> okay well yeah fingers crossed you will uh next up Matteo, you have connecting the dots cnib 2022 tell us about this one yeah exactly so they come back this year so the connecting dot is the largest um the largest educational and professional conference in canada this year they got a focus uh, on the education in educational technology and employment um, employment strategy, learning how to present yourself, what's uh, what's new in accessibility for uh, you know in different organization. It is um, it is quite cool though this year because usually they all do in presential, but um, I guess they follow one of the main mission of the CNIB, which is what is the reality of today. So this year they introduce uh, the online. Uh, conference. Mm-hmm. So you could be in Montreal, let's say for the one day event or in, in Quebec, uh, but you can, can so be like just in Joliet or in Quebec City, in Sherbrooke, whatever, you don't need to move and, you'll go, and you can get the same information uh, of everyone else. So I find it's quite interesting, especially on the new reality that we are right now. So it just gives more options. Um, it is not free, though. You have to register. If you do before the September 18, for, mem- for the CNIB member, it's 10 bucks, $10, my bad, uh, after it's 20 For the uh, member of the CNIB uh, employees of voluntary or your nonprofit organization member, it's $25, $40 after the, the 18th of September. And for everyone else, it's $40 now and $60 after the 18th. 
And there is, uh, so far of what I said, there is three dates in October, the, 20, the 18th, 25th, and the 13th in Montreal. Specifically, this one, it's, uh, it's the, the one that employment, so it's for networking and stuff. Um, and yeah, so you want more information, you just need to go at cnib.ca slash connecting that dots, and you get all information, the links for register, and it's a security payment, uh, like uh, always, it's by mm-hmm. PayPal, or you can as well send a check if you are more yeah, comfortable and, with that option. And they're very detailed on the the days, schedules, the seminars, the vendors, like the entire list of everything exactly. and anything that you can expect. So uh, there's a lot to take in, but you can definitely check it out. And you've put together um, a decent amount of that information as well up on our blog, ami.ca slash Kelly Cool. Awesome. Uh, I want to talk to you about here something that it sounds really important because so many people struggle. We've only got a couple of minutes to knock this off, though. Uh, yeah. Visual AIDS Insurance Program. Yeah, I'll do really quickly in that one. So this one, I said two months ago, and I decided to keep it close to September because I know school's coming soon. doesn't matter. You agreed. It's, uh, it's there. So, look, everyone think that our equipment that we have, Victor Stream, whatever equipment equipment you have with you or cover, which is not, this is not true. You lose it and you can have consequences uh, that might, you're not gonna get back your tool from, from many years. So here's one thing that is really important. You can register a personal insurance, which is not cost like a lot of money, but is really important. It helps you just in case that anything happened to your equipment, you lose it, you drop water, there's a fire in your house, whatever, you've been still. Uh, there's a lot of different programs and information. It is really large, so I'm not going to go with any details. I highly everyone uh, to go there, take the time. It's fully accessible uh, to read through all the, the criteria and what they, what they, what they can offer if you got trouble, you don't find the right information, which is nice. You can call straight um, a lady, a technician, an insurance technician. Uh, her name is Danielle Sege. You can reach her at 514-282-4256. They help, she will definitely help you out to find uh, the information you need. And it's important, guys, because those tools cost $1,000. Uh, you don't want to be pen, penish, penalized because there's, you know, something happened. Most of the time, oh, we're out of control, but we're the mm-hmm. ones can suffering the consequences directly. So, well, and your standard house insurance gang doesn't necessarily understand or know, and they only have so much in their books of information with these unique items that some of us need for supports. Wow, excellent! Great stuff brought today, sir. Thank you kindly. Hey, thank you very much, Kelly. We'll talk to you next month. Mathieu Rochette is our committee reporter in Montreal, Quebec, of course. Remember to check out our blog for all the things he talks about, ami.ca slash Co. Coming up next, Lucia Belafonte breaks down the importance of organizational skills and the way that these skills help children with disability foster independence. Very important topic. Up next on Kelly and Company.
From your TV, find AMI Audio, Westman Channel uh, 89, and Bell Alliance Channel 66. Visit AMI.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. Programs Kelly and Company, your hosts, Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald, hanging out with you on your Tuesday as we work our way through our program. Let's check in with uh, Lucia Belafonte. This is our parenting talk that we do once a month, so we welcome her on board. Are you ready to learn, laugh, and maybe even cry a little? I'm Lucia Belafonte. Thanks for joining me on Kelly and Company, where both kids and parents can expect to grow in confidence and courage. Welcome back, Lucia. And have to say earlier in the program, commented on the fact that I'm pretty sure Ram and I will have some things to say along with you here in... in <laughs> Agreeance, um, because of the level of importance. I always like to say to people, for people learning independence, cooking and, and mobility are really, really, for those of us with low vision or no vision, really important. However, you may yes. have trumped that depending on what we get into today. So what's on the agenda for today? Oh, my gosh. So happy to be here with both of you. On the agenda is organizational skills. And you've touched on it because I think organizational skills help a child throughout their lifetime. It fosters independence, responsibility, self-regulation, and, of course, self-confidence. Yeah, there's a, a lot to say about all of this stuff. So where can we, but specifically parents, begin mm-hmm. in this part of the conversation? Well, I think you can begin, you know, when the child is is young, right? That would be great. Um, and you can begin at any point as well. So having said that we begin when the child is young, remember that you can start a new journey at any point in time. But you can begin by having your child be responsible for their own belongings. And that means their toys, their clothing, their books, um, maybe even helping to set the table. And that could be a full table setting or perhaps just placing one item that they're going to use, like a spoon for everyone at the table. And, you know, if we're talking about raising a child who is blind or partially sighted, remember that you can teach with hand over hand or hand under hand techniques. And always, as the adult, you want to be kind, gentle and patient. Remember, working on one skill at a time. Because we're going to think of this as foundational work. Regardless of when we're starting, if we think of organization as foundational work, it makes it easier for the adult and the child. As much as possible, too, we want to have the child have control over the choices and decisions that are being made, even regarding to organization. And this, of course, will foster feelings of ownership and pride. For sure. And I, I think if you don't feel there's a, necessarily a way of making the mistake when doing it, organizing, mm-hmm. whatever it might mean, yeah. but there is a, a general order to doing something. However, yes. there are those exceptions with that order of it doesn't necessarily mean each toy has to go back in the chest the same way they, they came out or the way you had them last time. However, you sometimes do have to understand that things fit a certain way when we when we do things. Is, is there a way to help make that organizational really be more of a successful thing for both adult and child? I think so. I think like I like the idea of, of the toys. So, you know, we learn as we go through life that 
the the best way to avoid difficulties is to plan ahead, right? So with the with the toys, if we have the space and a place to put everything back and we can sort them accordingly, then it makes life easier. And that would mean for sorting, either having a bin or a basket, or uh, we used to say at school, a home for each item. And, you know, we talked about involving the child in this. So sit with your child and regardless of age, talk about how you want and they want to organize their toys. You know, it might be organized by everything that's big or everything that's small goes into one bin or one container and that's fine and then Kelly that's to your point it doesn't matter at that point what you're putting away first but what matters is where items are going and where items are going to be placed is not so much because you know we want to control everything but it's to help the organization it's to help the child know where things can go and also where they can go then on their own to get that item back And so when you work together and come up with a plan together, I think you'll be really successful. And you talked a little bit too, you mentioned about the order of things. Um, And when I always think about um, learning in a very natural way. So let's say you've asked your child to set the table. One of the things we remember as an adult is again, be kind and gentle. And remember our reactions will make a big difference. We don't need to get upset. It's not a big deal if the child decides to bring the spoon before the fork, nothing's gonna happen. What if your child decides to put down the placemat or a tablecloth first? Uh, Sorry, not first, but second, but puts down the dishes and then the placemat or a tablecloth. Well, it's not a big deal. What's going to happen? The child's going to learn that that's not going to work. And then it gives you the opportunity as the adult to talk about things like planning ahead or sequencing. Mm -hmm. And it's great because... These skills are, you know, invaluable, not only in that moment, but later on planning in life. But this is a really nice, natural, safe way to learn that sometimes it's important to go in sequence or to think about what we're going to do in the order that we're going to do things in. It's a really, really great example of, Mm. um, you know, how to create that safe learning experience, right? Because you're Mm -hmm. there, you're there to help, you're there to suggest and maybe be there to answer some questions as the the adult or the the parent. Um, But yeah, your your child can totally just go with it and and realize on their own, oh, okay, it would make more sense to do it this way or whatever. Um, But that's, that's awesome. Is there another way to help? make organizational success easier for both the adult and the child? Ah, well, I always say, you know, arrange and maintain personal space and shared spaces. So we we have a limited a time. So I'd like to share with the audience that, you know, of course, you can take everything that we're that I'm suggesting today and break it down and continuously break it down. But let's say we look at personal and shared spaces. We want to use that to optimize um, ease, safety and independent access. So to set up a space for success, you want to make certain that there's enough room, let's say, in a drawer for a child to put their clothing away. It's not going to be um, advantageous if there isn't enough space 
for everything to fit. So if there's too much clothing, then of course, you know yourself, if you go into your closet or into a drawer and it's messy because there's not enough space, that's not going to facilitate ease and independent access for your child, particularly if that child is a child who is blind. We want to make certain things fit. Another idea is we can use bins for different clothing items. So for example, socks, underwears, uh, or in different bins than t-shirts and pants. Braille labels, we talked about Braille before. If your child is learning Braille, you could have the full um, name for it, but then focus on the first letter, for example, um, in a drawer. And you can see, of course, there's the overlapping of skills, but organization is also personal, and we can remember that, right, when we're organizing. Um, arranging items in the kitchen. We talk about thinking later on about being independent and being able to cook and clean up after ourselves. You know, starting in one room and then in one area of the room, I think is a great way for an adult or caregiver to begin when attempting to organize. Really, it's your family space for success as a family and then success for that individual child. And remember, we want to place items where the child can reach them independently, but we also want to pay attention to the items that are there. We want to keep things that are not safe out of reach, right? That goes without saying. Um, a helpful tip I find is, you know, as a sighted person, I don't need to pay attention to where something goes and necessarily put it back in the same spot all the time. But that is so critical for a child or a person who is blind. And so if you're sighted, how about maybe making some visual labels or pictures for yourself and the other members of your family so that you all know to put everything back in the same space. It makes life so much easier for a child then to know that they can count on that item being in that location when they get it. And that goes for like the laundry room the bathroom mm -hmm. um kitchen right so well, also Go how ahead. important it is mm -hmm. overall going through life so that you're not dropping yes. things wasting so much time trying to find yes. things and also being yes. disrespectful in any any yes. location whether it's your mom's home your 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 friends whatever it might be yeah. you're returning things as as my family say would you put it back where you got it from and right. that's as simple as that. Of course, you had the luxury of calling them out on it when they didn't do it as well. Yes. Because um, it's so important. Last bit of advice, Lucia, what do you have for yeah. us? Well, I would say really begin with one room, one space at a time. That way it's not overwhelming for the adult. It's not overwhelming for the child. And also this applies for a classroom or daycare center as well, right? You begin with one space, one area at a time. And if you've just had a child, this is great because now is the perfect time to begin moving forward as your child ages to think of one space, one area at a time. And then you keep your child's age in mind. If your child is older and let's say organization has been a challenge, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? Some things are not working well. Let's get together. Let's have a family meeting. And of course, we're going to be patient and kind and gentle. We're going to have a family meeting, sit down together and discuss how we can all move forward together and make life better for everyone. And then you begin with one room, one space at a time. Talk about 
how and what you need. And remember that it doesn't need to be perfect from the very beginning. We're going to tweak things. We're going to perfect things as we go along because it's only as we're moving forward that we know what's working and what's not working for us, right? We, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, that's the thing. It is kind of a lifelong journey you know as you go through yeah. I think of all the different stages we go through in mm. life you know uh, and things change we change our methods and approaches change as we get exposed to uh, you know how other people do things that might influence you know and impact the way that you decide you want to organize things um, I know when I when I moved out of my parents house mm -hmm. for the first time and realized oh my there are to totally different ways of doing things in my own yes. life um and and that's pretty interesting too which which is also where the patience comes along right right but that's a, a lovely point because if we can help I think it's beautiful if we can help a child realize that there's more than one way of doing something and that's why I like the idea of collaborating, right, when we're planning for that success. So let's say we're going to begin in the child's bedroom, and that's always a great place to begin because it's their space. Let's get that child's input. And then when they make a suggestion, whether or not you think it's going to work, you can try it, of course, if it's keeping safety in mind. And then beyond that point, you can make your suggestion so that from that point, the child is learning, hey, there's two ways of accomplishing the same goal, right? And that's okay. Okay, so I always say, you know, start small, grow big, and uh, just be patient with each other and know that that organizational skill is a lifelong learning skill, but you're going to set the foundation for future success when you help your child today for tomorrow. Yeah, and learning that flexibility, and hopefully you yes. have that that understanding how important, especially if we're talking a low vision or a blind child, it is mm -hmm. pretty important. It is something to learn. It saves you a lot of time later You know, yes. when you're putting things down. Where did I put that? Well, if you're used yes. to putting it in its one or two places, then yep. you have a little less time wasted looking and checking those places. Lucia, of course, thank you. A wonderful topic. Thanks. Take care. Have a great rest of the week. You betcha. Uh, we'll catch up with uh, Lucia Belafonte on the fourth Tuesday of the month when we talk parenting right here on Kelly and Company. Up next, our book club. We review The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, recommended by Catherine Vatcher, who will be joining us on the panel in a couple of minutes right here on Kelly and Company. Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald, hosts of the program. Welcome back. Thank you for being with us wherever you're listening in. Appreciate your time, of course. Well, it's that time. Uh, the last Tuesday... Uh oh Usually, the last Tuesday of the month, we gather for our book club. You did warn people we were changing the date, right? I did. There'll be some angry At people At least once. Us. At least once. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Put it out there. All right. Anyway, folks, <clears throat> this is the book club at a different date and time. So the beautiful thing is next month you get a little about a week extra to, to read the next book. True. I turn things over to your host. 
Okay, thank you. Yes, that's the positive way of looking at it. You get one extra week for the September book. But let's start with this one. So at our book club, which is uh, you know in and around the last Tuesday of the month, it's our chance and yours to really get into the books, authors and narrators we love or don't love. It really is just a candid uh, review and conversation about our book experience. And today's book for discussion is The Scarlet Letter. This is by Nathaniel Hawthorne, recommended to us by Catherine Vatcher, who joins us on the panel. Catherine, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And we uh, we look forward to having this discussion on our book because we, we come from maybe a different perspective from last month's book. So let's start with um, your your reason for recommending or reason for wanting to recommend the book in the beginning. First of all, have you read this before? No, I haven't read this before. Okay, so this was your first read of the book along with us. Yes, it is. Yes. Okay, but it is one that a lot of people hear of and know about because, you know, the, the references are endless, um, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, let's talk about your first read of it. Why did you want to recommend it before even having read it, um, first of all? Well, well, you know how the saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover, but I did judge the book by its cover, and I was let down because I thought it was going to be a fantastic read, it is it is a great story, mm. but um, the language was very difficult to get through. I even was reading it myself, and then I said, well, I'm going to try it on audible, audible. So I downloaded that and got that, and then the, it was reading it to me. I'm thinking, oh, goodness, this is so hard to get through. Mm. But the story, the storyline alone is just fantastic. The storyline is fantastic. Of, it is. It is. I was. I was excited to read it, but then I was also let down when I was reading it. Now, by the were writer. And, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. By the writer and, and all the. I was finding there was a lot of filler yeah. in the story. Okay. I don't know if you guys felt that, but oh, yeah. I thought there was a lot of unnecessary filling of the story to make up a, a book. Some of that, Catherine, I felt in the dialogue, which, again, would lead us down a different path because it's not a dialogue we're used to. Um, But I also felt there were things with characters that were mentioned. And yes, they they somewhat played in the story, but it almost was like to tell you about this character, something unique about them, something interesting about them, but nothing was necessarily done or at least maybe, again, my not, you know, I I don't want to say I struggled a lot with the language because had to read other books similar um, and, mm-hmm. and definitely uh, can follow. More for me, it was an attention keeper. It, it did not hold my yeah, attention the way no. I would have liked it to. Um, but I I do find as well that the characters, again, in that style of the early 1800s, didn't have a lot of depth. Yeah. Well, yeah, actually, just to comment on that, it was released in 1850. Right. So the the language yeah. and um, I wouldn't say the storyline. Well, the storyline, first of all, yes. But the language and the style of writing, I think, really reflects on that time frame uh, and why it was yeah. written the way it was. A, a lot of 
a lot of the others who were reading this book along with us uh, for Amr's Evening Book Club were saying, you know, if you're good with Shakespeare, then you might be okay with this book. Yeah. And it's, but it's not even necessarily the old English, no, it's but it's not. the no, it's no. the how deep you get into characters, how deep you get into the soliloquies and, you know, whether that plays a role in the bigger picture of the book or not, or you're just getting background you're or getting background, background that we can't relate to in the same way. And, yep. and as a fan of old time radio, yep. there are shows that I've listened to from the 1940s that are throwbacks uh, 25, 30, 50 years. So we're getting closer to that 1850. And there's a definite pattern. And, and I think people from that era, older people, 19, let's say you were, you were 60 in 1970. A lot of this would make much more sense to you. 100%. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And now we were totally fish fish out of water, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I want to get into this um the part about the length of the book because technically it wasn't very long. Like it's not a long yeah. read, right? I think it was four or five hours or so. It's some definitely considered a short read and it seemed long uh, to you, didn't it? It did it did seem long, or at least it <laughs> seemed heavy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. because of a lot of the detail focus being on you know, just the background information of different things. Now I wonder if for people who are always into the description, like the the longer mm. descriptions in general in books in even today's time, um, if that was if you're into that, then I wonder if it was a, a challenge that way. But Catherine would you? Why would you consider it heavy? Aside from what we've already talked about. Uh, well, I think basically because of what we just talked about, because there was a lot of, to me, my opinion, filler, and it was hard for me to keep my attention because I was saying, "Okay, hurry up and get over this. I want to know about this this Esther, and I want to know about this gentleman that she was having an affair with, and all this. I want to have the good the good details, not the filler. Mm. You know, I was like. Come on, get on with the story already. And that's Did the story I itself I feel like, heavy to you? Uh, kind, yes and no. I was trying to put myself in that era of time. And I, I try and put myself into that character and, and try and feel the way they felt. And But it was just a lot of technical things, like a, a lot of, his, not history, but a lot of um, their... There are rituals at that time and what they believed and how women should not speak and how women should not do this. So I think it was mm. like something that we're, it's hard for us to relate to now. And yet yeah. it was a forward-thinking book at the time, right? Because sure. it exposed yes. the behavior and the, the mistreatment, yes. even even referencing black people in it. That, that Exactly. Like there was a soul, it was very heavy with so much stuff in it and it, that was at the peak of things that were happening at that time slavery and women being able to speak or not being able to speak and segregation and all these things and and now look where we are in 2022 like all that's way back there so we're not we un, we know about these things but we weren't living them and it just brought all that stuff that we we were our heart was hard for us to relate to at that time because we're not in that time. It was putting me back in that time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense to you folks, but yeah, it was heavy, but it was heavy reading and heavy listening. But still, when they got to the point, it was hard to get to the point. But when they finally got to the point of what was happening, how she was wearing the scarlet letter and, 
and how the baby was conceived and her husband coming back and all these different things was like, oh my goodness, like so much happening. It's just very heavy. Mm. That's what I felt. But it's not very a, heavy. a complicated story in a lot of ways. No. It is no. a, no. Uh, for us, maybe a story where we'd say, oh, this is ridiculous. How could that? Ha- oh, yeah, it's 1850. Yeah. But it also, at the time, 1850, I think as a writer, and I don't know, I didn't look up uh, Hawthorne or any of that history, I would love to know how it was received or how he was received with such a mm, book at that yeah. time. Mm-hmm. I'm so, And in, in uh, New England, uh, where this takes place, you know, this is a, a place where you have real strict views and this oh. is that area where oh, witches very... were that kind of, yeah, of the time right uh, 200 yeah. years before so so it really is a very interesting place time and story yeah. uh, but but simple enough because you know the the people were very complex very rigid in their views well, then yeah and the, the oh, premise very... is you know adultery right and that that's yeah what the the whole thing is based on and then everything else is really just people's responses and carrying that shame and carrying the uh secret of it all and and all of these different things and also how it affects the child um but it's well an adultery by a, mm-hmm. uh, perpetrated by a female exactly males treated yeah. very yeah, exactly. different yeah, yeah, the males treated very differently yeah. or are are kind of almost protected from the the consequences um yeah. whereas the the female you're you're seeing her carry the shame along with not being able to fully confess and fully come to terms with her uh actions and past because she still has to carry so much around that she can't say, right? And her as daughter. you said. And her daughter, um, as Catherine said, keeping quiet as a woman. And that stuff, actually, you know, though it is how many hundreds of years old, uh, still feels like conversations that women can be having today and not specifically in North America, but around the world. Not only that, um, at the beginning of the book, you, you sort of see how it's been set up, like all those those women gathering in their little groups yep. and doing their little chit chat and all these little things like, you know, and then if, if that didn't happen, it probably wouldn't have been as bad, but they were there. And why are you like this? Why are you, why are you vomiting? Why are you this? Why are you that? It's like, they were, you know, like centering her out because she was different and she was thinking different and all kinds of different things. We still do that today though. Yep. Where like, you, you, know, even you though stand that out if you're not following everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. If, we're, if we see someone doing something different or shying away or, or whoever it is, doesn't matter yeah. your gender or, or race or anything. If you look any kind of different than what I am, well, there's a problem with you. Exactly. And that was back then. And it's, it's still true today. It's there like, was oh my, a point wow. in the story where people became just used to the, if you want to say, leper within yeah. the community. And yeah. mm-hmm. There was a leveling out, um, even for herself and her child, um, where they they existed with everyone, still never forget, to where the letter, wearing the letter, um, as we would learn, almost became, if you took it off, well, hold on, where'd it go? Uh, Especially in response to her daughter's feeling, mommy, where's the letter? When she disposes at one point in the story. And and how long is someone meant to carry shame? And you can see parallels of this all over the place here, right? People apologizing, cancel culture, uh, you know, celebrities and influencers 
feeling like they they once a part of their past is brought to the the surface they can't really live past that and and you see that in this book as well you know how mm-hmm. far does it go uh or, or even yeah. if you're thinking of it smaller scale you know people who um spend time in prison and then come out and have to rehabilitate and and be you know, members of society, but does it really ever leave them? The reputation, the, well, the and, mark. And in that era and further back, you came out of prison, you still also had the scars of prison, or yep. they even in some places you wore something that showed you're an ex-con. There wasn't exactly. the, uh, you know, I have my own right to privacy or yep. to go somewhere else and make a new life. It, 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 there was not on, you wear that shame. You yep. do. Yeah. Forever, you know. And we all and um, we're all guilty of it, for sure. All, and all and in all different contexts, kind of way. Yep. Yeah, and I'm yep. not sure, you know, how much of the the Scarlet Letter you uh, both have experienced in all other forms. And in, in pop culture, it's quite referenced, right? In other books, in in newer uh, TV series. I think because and- it was a reading. I think at some point in school or what, it, maybe not necessarily school, but mm-hmm. years ago, if I recall, because I, I've never read it before, but as you say, Ram, it, it's come up and I do believe I remember people saying, whether it be from a TV show or they talked about reading it as part of the required reading somewhere. It, that seems right to me. I could be very wrong and I'm still talking mm-hmm. from decades ago. Yeah. And that's no, part I, of it. I think so. Yeah, exactly. It required reading number one, and just it's yeah. it's known all over the place as a classic. But also, um, just to to bring up contemporary context of similar situations that people face. And I can't remember the name of the movie right now, but you know, it depicts this teenage girl who um, either it was a pregnancy or, or like a teenage pregnancy or just something where she was outcasted at school, and this mm-hmm. this book was really just the the backbones of that story and as old as the the context is you know going back to our comparison of Shakespeare um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the thought behind it can feel very you know present day yep very much so and I did love Shakespeare in in, uh, school loved it but reading this one it caught me off guard I guess because I wasn't prepared Mm -hmm. um about like the the writing at that time but you can totally relate it to our life today totally in different avenues I mean I was 19 when I had my first child and I I know what it feels like to be pushed aside and ostracized like oh my goodness you shouldn't be doing that at that age like come on people you know but I know what it feels like to be pushed and cast out you know in a sense but just imagine with her like she's she's come over from Amsterdam and she's cast aside and her husband's dead and all this stuff and she's looking for acceptance and look what happens mm-hmm. <laughs> like oh my goodness wow you know and the the expectations and I think that this is something as as societies we're working on and have to work on all the time forever is yeah. just the expectations of of women um, and, you know, specifically women because of the decades and centuries of um, how much we've had to work to just be seen as the same as everybody else. But uh, it's still something that we still have to prove, unfortunately. Um, And that's, you know, we see that in so many ways in this book. Captain, thank you so much for, for the recommendation. I think we all have um, pretty, you know, interesting 
views on the book. And though it was a difficult one, we've taken away a lot of interesting messaging from it. Yes. Yes. Thank you for having me. Okay. It was fun. And you will be back with more recommendations in future. Oh, of course. Always. Of course. <laughs> Take more care. than a hint. Probably not mm-hmm. not as heavy as this one. I guarantee okay. you. I'm going to read it first, and then I will bring it to you. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate all the approaches. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm going to tell everyone about next month's book. So this is called Ristakouch, The Long Run of the Wild River. It's by Philip Lee, and it's recommended to us by Greg David from our communications department. Uh, It's available in synthetic audio on SELA. Wanted to give you a heads up on that. And it's available on Audible as well. So the Ristakouch River's flows through the remote border region between the provinces provinces of Quebec and New Brunswick. It's magically transparent waters, soaring forest hillsides, and population of Atlantic salmon creating one of the most storied wild spaces on the continent. In Ristakouch, writer Philip Lee follows ancient portage routes into the headwaters of the river, traveling by canoe to explore the extraordinary history of the water and the people of the valley. They include the Mi'kmaq uh, who have um, resided in the Ristakouch Valley for thousands of years, the descendants of French, Acadian, Irish, and Scottish settlers, and some of the wealthiest people in the world who for more than a century have used the river as an exclusive wilderness retreat. So we're uh, really looking forward to the historical significance of this and the geographical significance of this book when we chat about it on September 27th, which is the last Tuesday of the month with ourselves and Greg David. We'll be back in a couple of moments to wrap up the program and see what's up tomorrow on Now with Dave Brown. I mentioned, folks, the podcast. Subscribe using your favorite podcatcher, if you will. Please give us a rating and review if you have a couple of moments, but mostly just check out the show, the complete Kelly and Company podcast experience, or you can listen to the show in segment form, whatever's your pleasure. Great way to take it in. We're on uh, most podcast platforms. Just uh, give us a search. AMI Audio. You'll find a bunch of great podcasts to check out. Kelly and Company. Rum, any particular segment that you want to give a shout out to? I, I have a feeling with the heaviness of the book. Did the, this this time book club seem a little long to you? <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's what's interesting, Kels. The book didn't feel long. It just felt like heavy. To you. heavy. Yeah. And yet we, we go and say that there wasn't um, necessarily a lot of background on other characters, mm-hmm. but yet it was long and heavy and we yeah. oh, get to the point. It, it's, I Which think really speaks to just how much language. writing style has changed exactly and portrayal of language and things like that. Um, but yeah, you know, it makes sense as what was written 1850. And for people who really enjoy that, there's a lot of layers to that and that they're able to interpret, pick out. And, and I think you really do have to read some of those things, especially as as we are so far removed from it. Um, you have to have that right time to read it when your mind mm-hmm. is there. And I, I think that's the same. Let's be honest. I think that's the same with anything you want to read. You have to be in the mood. Pretty much. And, you know, my brother does this thing and I tried it after reading this book where he, uh, you know, watches a series or whatever and then goes on like not spark notes, whatever it is for TV and sees how they've summarized it and right. says, OK, was it? 
does it feel like the same amount of time that was spent uh, or the same amount of info in the summary? Does it feel like it captured all that in the movie or the TV show? And when I read the summary for this book, after reading this book, I'm like, wow, the summary was, you know, encapsulated it so much better than the, the version of how it's presented in the book. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Well, it's always interesting because we make so many versions and, you know, of things that yep. reflect that also may make it more understandable for people in a given time. Mm-hmm. Um, Want to talk about uh, what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown tomorrow? Certainly. You've got it right, right there. Mr. Daniel's yes, away, so uh, you'll, you'll, you'll pinch hit for him. That's right. So this is what they have as a part of the lineup. Dr. Kelly Auburn-Nesitapolis from the University of Toronto is describing her report on creating inclusive playgrounds for children with disabilities. We are very excited about playgrounds, so we're down for this conversation. Also, community reporter Milena Kazanavichis is sharing details about this year's Grand Oasis Festival series that celebrates music and art in downtown Halifax and Apple. Going back to their security flaws and issues that they're having, they're, uh, you know, allowing hackers to control their iPhones, iPads and Macs. And Mike Agarbo is going to talk more about uh, what you need to consider and think about (laughs) when you're following this story. Uh, The bottom line when we talked about it with John Beeler was update your devices, please. And of course, you have the people who will say, yeah, it's Apple getting you to update your device again. (laughs) No harm I, in that. No, I think it's probably safer if you have their device. The kind of idea is, well, generally I like what they have and whatever improvements mm-hmm. or fixes they're making, I'm all about. Uh, speaking of all about, we'll be all about another show beginning at 2 p.m. tomorrow, Rum. That's right. Producer Jeff Ryman will be here to kick it off, and he'll share the latest health headlines with us. Uh, just something to note. Sleep is vital at any age. We chat about the importance of sleep for youth tomorrow on the show with Margaret Eaton, National CEO, Canadian Mental Health Association. Also, it's the Wednesday edition of Buzz with Bill Shackleton when he joins us. And Mary Mamalini of Kitchen Confession shares ideas on what to include in a care package for returning post-secondary school students. Take care of those folks, you know. Mary's got some wonderful ideas. We get on the road with tomorrow's show starting at 2 p.m. Eastern. Take care, folks. Fedora's off to you. The summer always makes me think about the variety of volunteer readers we used to have back in the days when we were voice print and then made the change to AMI, including AMI-TV and AMI-Tele. But I'm going to focus a little bit on the volunteers that worked with us for AMI-audio. And and we brought a couple of them on here. A couple of them uh, now are employed and, and work as freelancers for us reading content for the various programs on AMI-audio. So we've had some great experiences, including ones that continue doing description um, and and had first different projects and out there on their own doing different things for the different production companies. So it's really 
from those earlier days really bursted. But one of the things this summer, and if you think, well, don't you think about these people, if you worked with these people, and there were so many of them folks that, that gave their time from so many diverse walks of life. But in the summer, just usually at the beginning before people went away, we'd have this great barbecue event. And it was so nice. All these volunteers would get together. And I know for myself, when I ever first came to check the place out, outside of my initial visit years ago when they were still located at the CNIB on Bayview in Toronto, I went over to Laird for my first meeting, and that's where I first worked. Laird in Toronto, Laird, uh, which is was basically a portable that we used for the space then. Very small amount of staff, and we had these volunteers that came in. But when I came, the first time was for this appreciation barbecue that was held. And I'll tell you, what a way to make an impression on a prospective employee. Discussion happened that I was going to do some fill-in work in the summertime, uh, working in production. That's where I first met Bill Shackleton and uh, Tony King, who now is retired from the company, and so many staff that were here. And again, as I said, a small number, but I had that chance to meet a lot of the staff that first night. Left there quite impressed. Went back home and came into work. But I'll never forget that event and a few of the others that followed as we did it for a, a number of years still. And I would actually be an employee and working there. But it was a really great chance to just get a, a moment to laugh with people, talk with coworkers. But those volunteers who were the lifeblood, as we always you know, expressed to them at the time, it was such a time to learn about them and experience who they were outside of sitting there talking to them through a glass as they as they read their shows for us. Always in the summer, I think. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.